welcome to this episode of the Boulder Bassoon Quartet podcast. Uh, I'm Michael. I'm here with Brian and Kent and Ethan. And our special guest returns. This is Brian's wonderful relative, Kitty. I'm not allowed to call you Aunt Kitty, am I? You can do that. Brian. I get to call her Aunt Brian Kitty. Can. Brian can. Makes me not. feel old. You know what Michael actually has? I have an Aunt Kitty. Do you really? Yeah, who <laughs> happens to be among my family, perhaps the most... Well, I don't know if I want to say all of this in public. So, shout out to my father, shout out to my mom, shout out to Aunt Linda, but Aunt Kitty is one of the most um, supportive and uh, excited about this whole this whole thing. You said shout out to Aunt who? Linda. Whoa. Brian has an Aunt Linda. I had an Aunt Linda. Brian and I are essentially, wow. we're like the <laughs> antithesis of each other. We're perfect symmetry. Yeah. <laughs> we have the same aunts, the same family, and we're exact opposites. So you're like nemesises, nemesi, nemesises uh, to nemesis. each other. Is that a word? I don't Frenemies know. Frenemies, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> and you end up in the same quartet. That's scary. Dang. Is it, is it scary? But it is. his kitty is spelled K-I-T-T-Y, right? That's true. Is she a Catherine? She is. I'm not. I'm a kitty. Which is kind of odd when you become a senior to be walking around with as Kitty. <laughs> I feel like I should push open bar doors and walk through from... Remember Gunsmoke? You're too young. I've seen a few episodes <laughs> okay. of Gunsmoke. And I remember that one of the characters is named Kitty. Kitty, yeah. Hmm. Well, last time we talked very briefly about something that happens to all musicians, which is performance anxiety or just getting nervous. And there are a number of different ways to try to, to deal with it. Um, and so it's, it's something very important for us all to talk about. Is it therapeutic for us to talk about? I don't know if it makes it better <laughs> or worse. <laughs> Just dredge up memories. <laughs> Personally, I find in a rehearsal or a performance, I can get nervous, but it's always a, re- a, a reasonable amount of anxiety and that it's, I can deal with it. I mean, a couple of years ago, I played principal on Rite of Spring at Colorado Ballet in this big, beautiful opera hall, seats a thousand people or more, with seven performances. It's a hundred-year anniversary of Rite of Spring, and it's it's a huge, you know, deal in the bassoon world. And I was nervous and scared, but it was all manageable, and everything went just fine. I heard but, you play one of those. It sounded great. Uh, thank you. Really great. Well, and for the record, I was sitting next to him, and he never seemed that nervous to me. So it must have been manageable. (laughs) But if I go play the exact same thing in an audition situation, everything goes right out the window. I don't understand what the difference is exactly. I think there's playing in an orchestra, and there's auditioning. And those are two completely different experiences. And I I haven't cracked the audition code yet either. Well, it's kind of a bizarre way to get a job. I mean, you're you're getting a job, and you're essentially interviewing for a job where you're going to be working in a team for the entire time that you're there. But the way you get the job has to be, you know, evaluating just you. That's always seemed kind of weird to me. It's an unpleasant and unfair and uh, unrealistic way of getting a job. But the thing is, everybody says that. Even the people who are doing the audition, right. they say that, and nobody has a better solution yeah. to offer uh, it's very aggravating but anyway <laughs> we could go on and complain about all sorts of things <laughs> all day long but let's try to look for some 
solutions, some sort of positive ways to deal with all of this. Have you guys come across anything that's been helpful? Somewhat. What was that? I guess I would sort of divide it into the hippie nonsense of just adjusting your frame of mind. The second you have your place. Well, sort of. It's more like um, accepting the reality of how am I playing right now uh, and accepting my own fallibility, I guess, but also embracing the part of musical performance that I enjoy the most, which is uh, the communication aspect. and sort of zeroing my focus in on maybe three or four particular parts of a given piece or of a given performance that I really want to communicate. I think that's a big one right there, because when you, whenever you go out to perform, there's a billion different things going on. There's the physical motion of your fingers, there's breathing, there's um, worrying about phrasing, there's communicating with the people that you're playing with, dynamics, intonation, rhythm, goes on forever. And that can be totally overwhelming. So if you focus on one or two things and you say, this performance is all going to be about dynamics, the wide range of dynamics that I can play with, or this performance is all going to be about making sure this rhythm lines up with that guy or whatever, that can give you focus and kind of blocks out any extra things that could be a big distraction. So in order to readjust your mindsets and to focus on these things before you go on stage, mm-hmm. what are you doing? Uh, well, I mean, it starts weeks beforehand uh, in the preparation. And what I end up telling my students is that if you walk on stage and you can honestly say to yourself, given my circumstances, I am as prepared as I can possibly be for this moment, that goes a long way towards making me emotionally okay with the situation. And it's when I feel that I haven't prepared as much as I can uh, that I really feel the pressure and that it really manifests and starts to freak me out. Um, And so even if I believe that there will be parts of the performance that are not perfect, if I feel that this is truly the very best that that I can come up with right now, then that helps me feel okay with it. And that actually helps alleviate some of the, some of the nervousness and the freak out then it has to do with choosing uh, and it has to do with sort of musical values and performance values what are the most important things that I want to communicate and so it may be dynamics uh, sometimes it's uh, intonation sometimes it's more physical like sometimes it's um, I want to make sure that every inhalation uh, I relax um, those muscles that aren't needed for the actual motion of inhaling so that my lungs can fill to their maximum capacity. I think I'm gibbering. It's almost meditative. Almost. Yeah, I think so, almost. I think once or twice I got to a point where going, before going on stage, when I was backstage, I would like sit down. And when I was in high school, one of my teachers said like, have a seat and just put your hands, you know, flat, or like straight down. Let them just kind of dangle off the chair. And imagine this goo is like trickling out of your fingers and that's all the, the tension and everything. I was like, all right, I'll give that a shot, whatever. <laughs> and then it, I think it got to the point around maybe my second recital of grad school that I did too much. And I, I was like, yeah, whatever. And I just went on stage, <laughs> unfocused, sure, very relaxed, and it all fell apart 
And I was like, huh, this is not going so well. <laughs> This episode of the Boulder Bassoon Quartet Podcast is brought to you by Forrest's Music. Just about everything you could possibly need to play a double reed instrument is available at forrestsmusic.com, including From the Opposite Shore, the forrestsmusic.com. In the few hours or minutes right before walking on stage, uh, especially if I'm really feeling the physical effects, um, then I'll do a little bit of more meditative uh, contemplation. And I'll try to bring my awareness to all of the physical manifestations of uh, my nervousness. Is my throat dry? Okay, so I'll notice that it's dry and I'll try to find uh, the ability to kind of control not having my tongue quite so tight. Or when I get tense or anxious, I carry a lot of my tension in my shoulders. And so I can bring my awareness to my shoulders and I can think about trying to get them to relax a little bit. I'm drawing my awareness to the reality of my physical situation and I may not be literally trying to change every aspect of it but I'm trying to uh, just be in touch with it and understand it. Katie, what kind of uh, performance anxiety symptoms do you find? I have an interesting situation I think. I, I was a dancer and I would give anything to be on the stage. And my anxiety was just, how should I perform this? But of course, during all the rehearsals, it was ironed out what approach I was going to take. And when you use your whole body in a performance as a dancer, I think that you're able to let go of the anxiety because the body forces you to let go of the anxiety. So as a dancer, my anxiety was exhibited in making the performance more more emotional or more technically correct as opposed to freezing. Mm. When I played the organ as a church organist, I didn't have the, that anxiety when I played church services at all because my, my focus, my job, was to get the people in the congregation to sing, to respond to the church service through the through the music. The focus was not on me. The focus was on what the music could do to the to the congregation. As a player of the piano and the flute, notice I don't use musician, (laughs) um, there is nobody on that stage unless you're playing with an orchestra and therefore the anxiety level may be different, but you. And you actually are controlling the instrument and therefore you're not totally even in control of that instrument. So I find for me that 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 anxiety is uh, paralyzing and the only time I've ever done it I've been paralyzed doing it except I'm now trying to do it more to get over that. I'm trying to trying to dip into being my dancer to play my flute. I like that. When you play a solo you're standing up do you ever move around. See, I'm fairly new at playing the flute, 
Mm-hmm. Um, and playing it in front of people, certainly. And yes, I do. I, I do. And my first instructor discouraged me from moving. And Amy, my new instructor, mm-hmm. is encouraging. Interestingly, Galway discourages movement. Mm-hmm. We, we play standing up. And, and you guys move. Yeah. Mm-hmm. A little. I like it. I think uh, by moving around, it kind of, you take any of that nervous energy and use it towards something physically you know, get rid of it. And also, the more that we move, it gets me more into the performance. So if it's a dull situation and we're not into it and the audience isn't into it and we're just kind of standing still, blah. but if somebody starts moving and we start getting into the performance more and then it becomes more energizing and exciting and everything. My first flute teacher said to me when I was working on the pavan for a dead princess, tell me a story. I want to know what you're trying to convey. I don't care what notes you hit. I want to know what you're trying to convey. And that helped me a great deal to understand that music goes through your body and doesn't stop at, you know, you don't just blow something into that instrument and hope that the communication comes across. You have to be that communication. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's something that I gained a lot of appreciation for after Dr. Narimoto came to town and told us, talked with us in depth about the piece and about her experience and kind of helped me at least understand where she was coming from. Because that's a pretty abstract piece, so any, any clues you get as to what she was trying to do really helped. But yeah, that helped me in our next performance to understand the story behind it because it gave it more continuity, I think. And it, yeah, it does. It helps with, um, with anxiety, too, a little bit, I think. Someplace along the lines of one of my classes, I learned a lot of stuff about the brain, and in particular, this area called the basal ganglia. And the basal ganglia... I love that word. Ganglia? Basically. <laughs> basal ganglia. Do you know what it does? I don't. I'm excited for you to tell me. Okay. <laughs> the basal ganglia integrates feelings with motion. Here's an easy example. If you're happy, you smile. People do that without thinking about it. It just happens. If the basal ganglia becomes overloaded, then what you physically do starts to become beyond your control. So if you're walking down the street and somebody right behind you honks their car horn, you're going to jump, you know. Uh, So in a performance situation, the basal ganglia can become overloaded and then all these things start to happen that don't normally happen, like your hands start to get sweaty or... Yeah, you can, get, yeah. you can feel nauseous. I actually made a little list here when I, for a, a student project. If the basal ganglia is overloaded, actions tend to freeze up. Here are some symptoms of an over, overactive basal ganglia. Nausea, cold hands, predictions of the worst. So that's not a physical thing, but it, it actually happened. Here's an extreme one. Fear of dying or fear of doing something crazy. Conflict avoidance. Fear of being judged or scrutinized. That's a big one for us. Yeah. A quick startle reaction and a low threshold of embarrassment. So just by simply saying to yourself, like, oh, I feel bad, and I know it's because my basal ganglia is overloaded, that kind of, it's so ridiculous to say something like that. It kind of takes away some of the uh, seriousness and the pressure of any of these kinds of situations. So I always thought that was pretty interesting. There have been a couple of times when I felt nervous, and I would sit there and think, like, my basal ganglia is freaking out. And it didn't really help. (laughs) (laughs) You know, looking at this list that I made, I've got some other 
things in here. Make a list, which is basically what we talked about backstage. Have some things to think about, like what you're going to focus on when you're playing or some ideas of like, okay, let's relax. Let's think about the basal ganglia or whatever, because it's very easy to forget any of those things. As you're preparing for a performance, you can practice all of these different things and all, uh, all the different symptoms of performance anxiety that you might have. So make a list of what you expect to happen. And then if it does happen, you're more prepared to deal with it. You can also create a performance situation, even if nobody's around, you just kind of get in that mental space of like, imagine I'm at the recital hall or the concert hall. And instead of playing in the small carpeted room with pictures of my family on the wall, I'm in the, the concert hall and there are a bunch of strangers staring at me and the light is weird and whatever else you can kind of psych yourself out and then go play. I know somebody would guzzle down one or two or three cups of coffee and run around and then go into the practice room and play. Is that, is that to get your blood pressure kind of simulate what you it's feel like? to simulate as best you can the physical manifestations of performance anxiety oh. and then to practice playing in spite of or yeah, with sure. those symptoms. So if you're huffing and puffing and you can't really get a good grasp of air, if your heart rate's increased, psychologically you might not feel freaked out, but physically you've got the symptoms going on. My flute teacher suggests learning the music that you're going to be playing in several different keys, transposing it into different keys so that you're, during the practice you're hearing it differently and you're forcing your brain to, to know it so well mm -hmm. that it's actually part of your normal yeah. routine. Mm -hmm. And then she encourages her students to practice by recording themselves and makes you stand as if you're performing and record and listen to the recording. Mm -hmm. That's a very good tool, I think, because I think that is, as good as you try to hear what you're doing in the moment, you just miss so much that you'll only hear if you're listening to yourself after the fact. So essentially, we kind of have several different techniques in the categories of adjusting your mindset and in the category of practicing, experiencing the physical and emotional difficulties. And of course, nothing compares to the actual experience. Doing it, yeah. Wrecking up as many performance opportunities as mm, possible. Right. I agree. Yeah. Performing in front of people as often as possible. I think you should also do everything you can to play in the venue you're going to be performing in before mm -hmm. you perform. Yeah. Here's another one on my old list. Make the stage your own. Talking to or with the audience might help settle your nerves. Give the history behind the piece or the history of the composer the pieces meaning to you, whatever you want to talk about. You can walk around the stage. Some people like to decorate the stage beforehand, put up flowers or whatever. Whatever you can do to make, you know, make it feel like this is your space. And these people in the audience, these are your people. And then there are a couple of ideas that physically change your body chemistry. One is bananas. Eat bananas and it's supposed to help your hands calm down. How long before the concert? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it's never Dude, lots of bananas. <laughs> yeah, just yeah, just don't stop. Just keep bring a banana on stage with you. I've never spent a lot of time working on that one or researching it or anything. And then there's the big one, which is beta blockers. You can get a prescription for beta blockers, and you take one about half an hour or an hour before you play, 
And the idea is that it controls your heart or it allows your heart to relax. And I've tried this twice, fairly recently. One time I mistimed it and I took the beta blocker too soon to the audition. And I went in there, I got nervous, I didn't play so well, I came out, I waited a bit, they announced the results, I didn't make it to the next round. And I, I, I wanted to be angry, but I didn't feel anything because the beta blocker <laughs> finally kicked in. <laughs> and then the second time I timed it quite well and I went into the audition and I felt normal. I didn't feel like, hey, all right, I feel great. I felt just normal. It totally worked. It leveled the playing field and it was great. So if I ever try an audition again, I'll be taking those with me. Hmm. Have any of you guys ever tried a beta blocker? Haven't tried it. Nope. I haven't done it yet. I never really thought that I would be a pro beta blocker. And then somebody, an esteemed musician, the, one of the best musicians in the state, said, you totally have to do it because, like he put it, it just levels the playing field. Everybody else in the audition will be taking beta blockers. And if you don't, you're just putting yourself behind the eight ball. So it's like steroids. <laughs> it's like steroids. Right. steroids Everybody else is doing it. Athletes. Professional athletes, yeah. The beta blockers do not allow your heart rate to increase to the level that it would if you're in the gee, I'm really scared syndrome. So hmm. keeps it all at a certain level. And it's the kind of thing you want to maybe test out before you do use it for like a big public performance because somebody was telling me that they knew this girl who played in a quartet, a string quartet. She, she was like dangerously underweight anyway. And she tried like a half of a beta blocker and it's a very small pill to begin with. And she couldn't complete the performance. She was freaking out. She couldn't hold her instrument. It's not like the show. Side effects from yeah, from the pill. Probably had more to do with like anorexia. <laughs> but yes, right. if you've got unusual circumstances, who knows what the beta blocker might do? So does any of this sound helpful? Yeah, there's quite a few things actually that I haven't thought of, which I'll be trying now. The simulating the performance. It seems like it's so logical. I've never thought about that. I once had a lesson, and it was gearing up for a seating audition at college, and my teacher said, all right, go outside, go wait in the hallway, and we'll do a mock audition. And so I gathered up my music and my bassoon and my reed and my reed water and seat strap, and I went out into the hallway, and I waited, and I waited, and waited, and it went on for like 10 minutes. I couldn't believe how long he was having me wait out there in the hallway, and then finally he's like, okay, well, candidate 3B, come in, please. And I go in there, and the music stand was at a slightly different angle and the chair was facing a slightly different direction and my teacher wouldn't look at me he had a, like a notepad in front of him and he was writing stuff like he was already taking notes and he's like all right whenever you want to begin just go ahead so i got my music on the stand and i got situated and i was wondering like is my reed dried out should i re-soak my reed all these kinds of questions and it totally worked i got really freaked out just that little the stupid <laughs> angle of the music stand yeah. Yeah. He told me later I waited in the hall for maybe like a minute and a half. You know, it wasn't that long at all. So you can really psych yourself out at home without doing too much. Well, and I can echo what Mike was saying about kind of accepting where you are as a player at that point in time. That for me was a a big thing that helped. Mm -hmm. And I I think I first remember Daryl saying something in a studio class about it, about just kind of, you've got to accept that you're in this position and you've done X, Y, and Z to prepare for it, and, and that's what you've done. And somehow, just being in the mindset of like, okay, like I've practiced X amount of hours, and so that's going to lead to this kind of a result, and that's okay. 
there can be that mindset of like, this is it. This is where it actually counts. And so today is going to be different. And that's Mm -hmm. probably a bunch of baloney. Right. When you go to the actual performance, it's probably not going to be any better than your best practice session has been. And in fact, it's probably going to be the the average, the mean Uh of your practice. Do you memorize your music before you play, even though you may be using the music on stage? Yes, a little bit. Because this is another thing my teacher, I am not good at memorizing music, but she said, memorize the music. Do what you can to memorize sections Mm -hmm. of the music. Mm So that even if you lose your place, you keep going. your fingers are going. Yeah. They're going to keep going. I, I had that exact experience about a year ago. I had prepared the piece uh, by working on somewhat memorizing certain passages, especially the really uh, technically difficult ones. I did a lot of slow practice, but I got into one of the performances and I distinctly remember a moment where my brain completely checked out of the whole process. Uh, and my fingers kept going, just just like you said, Kitty. And I, I remember thinking to myself, wow, I am not at all thinking about what my fingers are doing, and wow, this is still going really well. I bet it's because I memorized this, and wow, I'm about to the part that I didn't memorize, and so I better pay attention again. And I hate that when I have fully formed sentences appear in my head while I'm playing. Like, yeah, this is going pretty well. Oops. Well, right. I... Lucky me, I managed to recover right before the oops moment. But it was it was a pretty interesting moment. I haven't had a lot of those a lot of those experiences in which the the fingers knew what to do even though the brain freaked out. I've had plenty of the opposite where my brain knew what I wanted to do and my fingers freaked out. I memorized three movements of the five sacred trees for a competition. And when you prepare really well, you're gonna repeat this stuff so much mm-hmm. that you've basically got it memorized. And it's just a matter of getting to the point where you can close the music or put it away and keep going. Trust. Yeah. Trust. One person I know puts it in the way of, like, imagine um, when you go out on stage, you turn on your internal radio and you tune it to the, the station that's playing this piece that you're about to perform. And then you play along with it. And that's I think that's the big thing. If I'm just reading the notes and playing, something bad's going to happen. But if I'm if I'm hearing it how it's supposed to go and how I want it to go and I'm proactively engaged in what's about to happen as opposed to what just did happen or whatever, that's going to go really well. Well, there you have it, folks. Lots of uh, helpful advice. But now we have to interrupt all that so we can play another edition of What's What's on on Kent's Kent's iPhone? iPhone. So, Kitty, the way this works is Kent has this unusually large iPhone 6 Plus, and on it he has all sorts of uh, treasures of music. So he's gonna Treasures. he's gonna hit play on random, and some juicy tidbit of the finest music you've ever heard is going to pop up. But before he does that, we're all gonna take a guess as to what we're in for today. What do you think it's gonna be, Mike? Berlioz Symphony Fantastique, third movement. Wow, that's wow. Very specific. Pretty specific guess. Dang. Ethan, I'm gonna guess for uh, guess some Strauss. Everybody's going classical today. We're gonna yeah. It's been the trend. Uh, It has been. I'm going to guess some 70s butt rock band, some horrible... Maybe Kansas. How about Kansas? (laughs) Oh, you're going to love this. Kitty, what do you think? I have no clue. (laughs) (laughs) You guys are going to love this. Here we go. Bach. Bach. Good choice. Oh, I win. I win. (laughs) What is this? Is this video game music? (laughs) 
So this is the danger of sharing our iTunes library. My wife and I have the same library. Oh, no, you so don't. So she's got all of her... Uh, you can't blame this on Mindy. This is USTA competition music. This is United nice. States Twirling <laughs> Association baton competition music. So this is stuff that, that she'll play while her kids are, are practicing, and then this stuff ends up getting played in the background during competition. So there you go. Gymnastics <laughs> music. It's, music. Yeah, it's, it's twirling music. Let me hear a little bit more. Okay. Sounds like 80s rock. Oh, yeah. That's my <laughs> yeah. right. There you go. Get I'm pumped. Never gonna guess That's very again. funny. <laughs> it's, it's, it sounds to me like her twirlers need music of a higher caliber. <laughs> yes. Perhaps some. Perhaps something from the opposite shore. <laughs> All right. Kitty, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Indeed. Thank yes. you. It's been a pleasure. You guys are awesome. Thank you. We need some more music to uh, wrap this one up. <laughs> How about some more twirling music? <laughs> twirling music. <laughs> How about some Shoey Brothers? Hey. All right. The Shoey Brothers, Brothers is a band. It's a bluegrass band. And cool. the bass player and one of the singers in the group. It's my stepdaughter. Yeah. Oh, uh-huh, cool. So here's some music by the Shoey Brothers. Up in the mountains, back in the hills. I can see it still The way the hills rose around our land We dreamed the Lord was holding us in his hand And when the hard times would bring us down Mom would say, kids look around Whether times are happy or times are tough If you're in the mountains, you're lucky down mom would say kids look around whether times are happy or times are tough if you're in the mountains you're lucky enough whether times are happy or times are tough if you're in the mountains you're lucky